Thank you all for uh, coming out again tonight. <clears throat> We're continuing our series on the philosophy of the uh, ministry of our church. And uh, some people have been uh, wondering exactly how the dots are being connected uh, as we've been talking about missions and I've been talking about the church, I've been talking about preaching. So uh, we're going to go <clears throat> back tonight and, and try to connect these dots a, a little more uh, clearly for you. Um, you have heard that in missions, we as a local church are prioritizing the work of church planting. And the reason that we are prioritizing the work of church planting is because the Bible prioritizes the work of church planting in the making of disciples. And one of the things that we're doing is not only uh, focusing on our local church in prioritizing uh, church planting, but uh, we're also uh, petitioning, we have petitioned annual conference uh, to uh, make as a priority uh, planting Bible fellowship churches in other parts of the world. Uh, right now, the only other place that there are Bible fellowship churches outside of the United States are in Mexico. And uh, we are seeking to have Bible fellowship churches in other parts of the world because we believe that that is the primary means in which God intends people that have come to faith to be developed and, and to grow and to mature. Uh, they need to be a part of a church. Uh, they need to be associated with God's people. And uh, we believe that that's very important. You have heard we have uh, talked with Dan Estrada and uh, have made some strides there. Uh, he's very interested in seeing a Bible Fellowship Church planted in Romania. Uh, he has requested and we have provided him with um, digital copies of our Articles of Faith. And uh, he and his wife are presently involved in translating those uh, Articles of Faith into their language. So there is some work being done, and uh, I have just been invited by the executive board of the Bible Fellowship Church to come uh, to a meeting there on December the 12th uh, to present to them uh, our ideas, uh, our strategy in planting uh, Bible Fellowship Churches in other parts of the world. So I would encourage you to be in prayer about, prayer about that uh, as uh, we meet with uh, the executive board and try to uh, have a meaningful uh, dialogue and uh, hopefully uh, meeting the minds. As we work through this outline, you'll see that discipleship is realized in the New Testament through participation in the church. The very essence of discipleship is connectivity, uh, to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the New Testament, that had some literal connotations to it. To be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ when Jesus was on this earth meant many times that you did just that. You went where Jesus was. Uh, you followed him. You sat under his teaching. You sat under his instruction. You saw the miracles take place and uh, all that uh, he had performed. So follower wasn't just a figurative form of speech, but it was also a literal form of speech. But it became to be both. But the very essence of discipleship is connectivity. It is people that have a unique relationship 
to each other. However, it is connected as not to just one person, but rather the people of God as a community of believers, which we're going to look at in greater detail tonight. Uh, so often uh, we emphasize one-on-one -on -one discipleship, and I'm not against one-on-one -on -one discipleship. Let me say that over and over and over again. Uh, we certainly see that in the New Testament. I'm not in any way trying to demean uh, discipleship that is one-on-one. -on -one. But what I am concerned about is discipleship that doesn't end up in some kind of community of believers that are formed into a church. Uh, it isn't just isolated individuals that are, quote, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are two images that the scripture has of the connectedness of God's people. First image is that they are a body, Colossians 1.18. And he, that is Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So here is this first image the image of a body. But the second image is that they are a church. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. These two images are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they are mutually inclusive. If you look at that grammatically, when it says he is the head of the body, uh, the church, the church is in a positive, which means that they are one and the same. Uh, the church is a body, and the body is the church. Those two ideas are not to be separated from each other. Now, there is a difference, but they are to be one. The people of God are a body, and the people of God are a church. The body emphasizes the mystical unity of the people of God. So when we talk about the body of God, believers, we're talking about those individuals that are born again, that have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and have been given certain gifts, certain abilities uh, to be used for the kingdom's work and uh, blessing. And so he is the head, and uh, he is divinely uh, giving these gifts and abilities to a people of God who are overseen in a sovereign way in which he is equipping them and enabling them by imparting uh, gifts. The second image is the church. But the church is the organizational unity of the people of God. The church is an organization, if you will, the church consists of elders. The church consists of deacons. The church oversees the uh, ordinances, baptism, communion, etc. So when we think of the mystical, sovereign working of God in bringing people to salvation, we talk in terms of the body. When we're talking about the unity that exists among God's people in an organized fashion, we're talking about the church. Moving on. The question tonight is what relationship does the body have to the church? And they are to be one and the same. Number one, 
the basis of the connectedness of those in the early church. The basis of their connectedness was the mutual committedness to the word of God. Uh, I'm looking at Acts chapter 2 now, which is the great uh, sermon of Peter on the day of Pentecost. And it says that those who received his word were baptized. So the committedness was to the word that Peter was preaching. Secondly, the basis of their connectivity was their mutual salvation. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Back earlier in the context, it says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for a certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So now we have the mystical and organizational unity taking place. In Acts chapter 2, verse 47, it says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The Lord's activity stresses the mystical or spiritual unity. The Lord added, and then notice the end of that statement, those who are being saved. All right? Here is God at work, saving people. Number two, their being added speaks of the organizational unity. It's speaking of the church. For notice in verse 4 of 7, it says, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number, <clears throat> meaning they could be counted. They could be counted. Their number was growing. They could be identified. We're talking about a specific group of people. Two, the formation of their connectedness. It was baptism that brought them into visible unity with each other. Acts 2.41, so those who received his word were baptized, were baptized. I stressed a few nights ago, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 to 20, where it says Jesus came to them, this is his resurrected appearance to the apostles. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I stressed in this verse how the primary means of making disciples is baptizing them. And I talked about how different that is in our modern day view of discipleship, in which it doesn't usually have baptism associated with it. It's usually one-on-one -on -one people sitting down, reading the scriptures together, talking about the things of God. There's nothing wrong with that. But the scripture talks about baptizing people in order to disciple them. <clears throat> and there is a reason for that. And there is a problem with <clears throat> evangelizing and not developing discipleship through baptism. And I mentioned even in the Bible Fellowship Church, 
there are very few of our missionaries that are actually engaged in a ministry that baptizes people. So why is this important? B, baptism was the outward form that united the people of God together. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's how they could be numbered. That's the number of people that were baptized. And it was in their baptism that they were added to their number. Number's important. It's talking about a specific group. It's talking about 3,000. You can count them. You can see them. You can identify them. Because they were baptized. And their baptism brought them into unity. Um, Many years ago, I was... Uh, chairing a study committee that was formed by the denomination that looked at the relationship of baptism and church membership. Uh, For there were some that were advocating that we shouldn't require baptism for church membership any longer. And uh, of course we do require baptism for church membership. And our committee came to the conclusion that if you're going to do away with something, you do away with membership, you don't do away with baptism. Baptism is in the scripture. Membership is not. Uh, In the New Testament, baptism was membership. That was the way in which you were brought into the people of God. That's the way in which you were brought into the church. That's how you were identified as one of God's people. You were baptized. And by being baptized, you were a part of God's people. Number three, the statement of their connectedness. So those who were received, his word were baptized. And there was added that day 3,000 souls. And notice it was that day, uh, the day in which they had received his word, the day in which they were baptized. Again, in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So here again is this combination. It is salvation as witness through baptism. Hey, they became a part of the group of the disciples. They were not isolated followers of Jesus. Uh, there are many today that are asking the question, uh, is it really important Is it necessary for a person who is saved to be a part of a church? Uh, Is it important that they worship with other believers? Uh, Is that some kind of legalistic requirement that has nothing to do with the New Testament? And believe it or not, there are a host of people that are saying, yes, that's just a legalistic requirement that has nothing to do with the New Testament, and uh, you, you won't find it. Well, you certainly find it here. Uh, For notice the reality of their connectedness. Uh, We are talking about a true connectivity, meaning that they were brought together. Together. Um, And there are four elements 
of their connectedness. The new converts committed themselves to four things. They devoted themselves. That word devoted means to be committed. Uh, They committed themselves to four things. First, they committed themselves to that which the apostles taught. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, when it talks about the apostles' teaching, that doesn't necessarily mean that the apostles were the ones doing the teaching. But rather, when it talks about the apostles' teaching, it's identifying a specific doctrinal perspective. They were committed to what the apostles taught. That body of truth. That was the first distinctiveness of these early worshipers. They were followers of what the apostles taught as opposed to being followers of the priests or of the rabbis or of the scribes and the Pharisees. So here is this doctrinal uh, setting apart of the people of God, the New Testament. Here is their doctrinal statement, if you will. They were followers of what the apostles taught. That's what made them distinct. That's what made them unique. That's what they were devoted to. They were devoted to the scriptures and understanding those scriptures in keeping with what the apostles taught. Number two. They committed themselves to the fellowship. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Number one, it's important to note that it is not fellowship in general, but to a specific fellowship. It is the fellowship, referring to this fledgling church, the people of God, now referred to here as as a fellowship. Next week, I am going to develop at length this New Testament concept of what fellowship is. Uh, Because again, uh, so much of what we think about as fellowship, uh, well, what the word means goes goes far beyond uh, what we normally think of as fellowship. Now, uh, a disclosure, uh, if you read some other translations, uh, they will read, they devoted themselves or committed themselves uh, to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. Uh, but in the original, the article is there, which makes it a specific fellowship. Not just fellowship in general, but the fellowship, the true fellowship, which in the word of God, the word fellowship means partnership. Partnership. They became partners together in the work of God. Uh, that is the primary significance of, of fellowship. They, they partnered together. Uh, They were going to work together. Uh, They were committed together uh, to do God's work and to accomplish God's purpose. They viewed themselves as in a partnership. Uh, I'm tempted to go on with that, but I'll save it for next week. Third, they committed themselves to the breaking of bread. Uh, Together, Acts 2.42 and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, 
and there is much discussion as to what breaking of bread means. There are those that understand that to refer to communion, and then there are those that understand that as shared meals that they had together from house to house. Uh, I will deal with that when we get to that. D, they commit themselves to praying together. Acts 2.42, and they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. The prayers. Again, some translations will say they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. But the literal translation is what you have here in the ESV, the prayers. So number one, again, it is not just prayer in general that they are committing themselves to. This says more than simply that these New Testament disciples and followers of Jesus were people of prayer. They were people of prayer. But it's much more than that. It is a specific time of prayer that they are devoting themselves to. Note the definite article. The prayers. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers. <clears throat> B, note that prayer is in the plural. It is not simply that they prayed, but they were devoting themselves to set times of prayers. See, it isn't just that they, they prayed, but they were devoted to the prayers. The time in which the people of God prayed together. That's what they were committed to. All right? Putting it in, Marla, in uh, modern parlance, <laughs> they were committed to prayer meeting. The time in which the people of God met to pray. <clears throat> so we have here uh, under B an aside about translation. Uh, NAS, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Again, it is the prayers, uh, plural. One might add, well, well, where do you see this in the text? Well, it's right there. But notice C. There were specific prayers that were associated with temple worship that they participated in. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That's the time in which the people of God gathered together to pray. And our text is telling us that here's Peter and, and John, they're, they're going to the temple at the ninth hour, because that's when the people of God gathered together for prayer. In addition, there are numerous accounts of events that are taking place in the book of Acts in which the people of God had gathered together for prayer. Acts 12, 12, just for one. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. They'd gathered together 
And the purpose for which they were gathered is that they were praying. They were praying together. They were committed to this concept of praying together as a people of God. Not just in isolation, but as part of their committedness to each other and participation in the work of God. So now, the reality of the connectedness. A, they were committed to being united. They literally would be together. Acts 2.44. And all who believed were together. That's a strong statement. All who believed were together. They had this connectedness. It it wasn't uh, individualistic. It wasn't if, okay, now that you have believed on the Lord, if you want to be baptized, that'd be nice. Uh, And then after you're baptized, if you would like to be a part of this this group, we'd be more than happy to have you. Uh, Be great if if you want to stop by and pray with us sometime or uh, celebrate communion with us or or somehow uh, get to know us a little better. No, all who believed were baptized, all who believed, were gathered together. B, they were committed to supplying each other's needs. Acts 2, 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They, when you read through the book of Acts, and if you know it, uh, the book of Acts, you realize that when it says they had all things in common, they were selling possessions. <laughs> they were giving them to the apostles to, to distribute as people had needs, etc. Uh, this committedness manifested itself in such a way that they gave up personal uh, belongings in order to meet the needs of their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And notice again, it's back to all who believed were together and had all things in common. That's what was expected. That's what was taught. That you were going to be a part of this group as a follower of Jesus Christ. For he said, I will build my church. And you weren't just part of the mystical body of Christ, but you were part of the visible church as well. C, they were committed to worshiping together. Acts 2.46. And day by day, attending the temple together. They were committed. Day by day, meaning on a regular basis, they were attending the temple. But notice, it isn't just that They were individualistically going to the temple. It says that they were attending the temple together. Together, together, together is what Acts chapter 2 is about. It's this relationship of the church coming together, of 3,000 people being committed to Jesus Christ and to each other. So you see the connection to where I pointed out that 
James and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer. Now we find that they're going together to the temple to pray. The early Christians made uh, temple worship a part of their, their worship, their fellowship, their committedness. Um, <clears throat> the early church was involved in temple worship until they became such a problem to the Jewish people because the apostles' teaching is what they are following uh, that they became a source of heartache and misery to the priests and eventually came up with a, a, an anathema of Jesus Christ which forced the Christians to no longer be a part of temple worship. Uh, but that's down the line. Uh, that's years into the future. Right now, they are gathering as a group to go to the temple and to worship. And I also submit that at that time they're also evangelizing. But the point is that they are together worshiping God. Not individualistically, not in any old particular way that, that they felt like, but together they're worshiping God. And D, they were committed to informally gathering together. Acts 2.46. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So they shared. They were rejoicing in what God had given them. And they were using their gift of hospitality uh, to continue uh, their, their time together. So conclusion. When we think of the relationship of the body to the church, we speak of the church in two ways. There is the visible church. That is the church that can be seen with human eyes. That is professed believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we think of the church and we think of the Lebanon Bible Fellowship Church, we think of those people who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and who have been baptized as being a part of the church. B, we also speak of the invisible church. That is people who not only have made a profession of faith and are baptized, but those who are actually saved. So we realize that just because a person says that they are saved, and even if a person professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and is baptized, that doesn't actually guarantee that they are truly born again. Uh, we can't know that. Uh, we can't look into a person's heart and understand who is truly regenerate and who isn't. We can ask questions. We can look for fruit. Uh, we can require that they are baptized, but we don't know for sure who are true believers. Uh, so when we talk about the invisible church, we're talking about those that are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the invisible church is a, is a term that, that we have come up with a theological term uh, to help us differentiate the reality of the difference between those who say they're saved and those who aren't. 
But the emphasis on the scriptures is the visible church. It's the people that we can see, the people that we can number, the people that we can identify with, the people that we can pray with, the people that we can share communion with, the people that we have, we have baptized. So number one, those who have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through baptism. That is why we require baptism for church membership. We're talking about philosophy of ministry. The reason we require baptism for church membership is because in the New Testament, the way in which you became a part of the church was to be baptized. Simple as that. That's the way you identify with God's people. And as you read through the book of Acts, you remember the, the difficulty of the, uh, Peter when he baptized Cornelius. And because that meant he welcomed them into the church. And they had a whole council as to whether or not that was the appropriate thing to do. Should they have welcomed Cornelius, this uh, uh, Jewish uh, individual, into the fellowship of believers? And of course the answer was yes. And one of the reasons was because they had received the Holy Spirit. Uh, so if they're part of the body, <laughs> you've got to let them be a part of the church for there is to be no distinction between the body and the church. <clears throat> Number one. Number two, those who profess faith Lord Jesus Christ through baptism are to become a part of the church. Now that's a little different. Number one says those who have professed faith in Lord Jesus Christ through baptism um, are to be accepted as a part of the church. Number two, those who profess faith in Lord Jesus Christ through baptism are to become a part of the church. So in reality, church membership isn't a, a choice. Uh, you can become a member if you want. You don't have to become a member if you don't want. Now, that's certainly not a New Testament concept. Uh, if you are a follower of Christ, you're to be baptized. And the significance of that is, if you're baptized, now you become a follower. You become a part. Uh, you can be numbered with the people of God. Uh, so there is no thought that there's going to be a believer who isn't baptized, and there's no thought that there's going to be a, uh, a baptized person who isn't a part of the body of Christ, the church. So it is significant in our day and age that we have so many people who aren't baptizing which is resulting in the fact that they are not associating with the church. And many organizations that don't baptize teach that there's no real significance of being a part of the church. Um, you can just go to a Bible study. You can just go and, and do your own thing. And, and that's perfectly acceptable. Well, not according to the New Testament. Number three, the church is to receive those who are truly saved. Um, so it is our responsibility to, to make sure that those people who are going to be viewed as members in the church are people who are truly born again. Uh, everyone is invited uh, to attend uh, the church, but it's the responsibility of the elders to oversee and be assured that those people that are actually identified as the people of God 
truly are born again, uh, that they have a saving relationship to Jesus Christ as evidenced through their profession of faith and baptism. Four, those who are truly saved are to identify with and become a part of the church, <clears throat> meaning that they're committed to what the apostles taught. There is the doctrinal aspect of the people of God, uh, that uh, if you reject what the apostles taught, uh, you shouldn't be welcomed uh, into the life of the church. It wasn't just those that uh, were identifying with the Levitical priests, those that were identifying with the scriptures. There would have been loads of worshipers at the temple. But it's specifically those that received that message of repentance, of salvation, by grace through faith, that was preached on the day of Pentecost. Uh, those that followed that teaching were a part of the church. Secondly, they're committed to the fellowship, to the, to the people of God. Uh, they were committed to the breaking of bread. Uh, I would take that primarily as communion, uh, but more than that. And then lastly, they were committed to the prayers. Not just to praying in general, but praying with God's people as a whole for mutual concerns. And uh, when you read the book of Acts through this lens, it really starts coming alive when the people of God are gathered together and praying for Peter when he's in prison and he's released. As you think of, of those great stories, accounts of the working of God uh, in uh, the spread of the gospel, as you think of the missionary journeys, and you realize that the Apostle Paul is planting churches in all of these cities that he goes to, and then the second missionary journey, he's going back to those same cities and visiting them and seeing how they're doing. And then you get to the New Testament where it says you need to ordain elders in each of these, these cities. Uh, you need to establish this church. You need to establish these bodies of believers into an organized entity that together are going to engage in the partnership of discipling one another, continuing the work of God, passing on from one generation to the next the truth of God's word, preserving it so that it's what the apostles Paul, excuse me, what the apostles taught that we are teaching today. That's what Timothy is, and where I went to there and talked about uh, teaching others that will be able to teach still others. So five, that is the story of the book of Acts. Just read the book of Acts and follow the baptisms. Follow the establishment of the churches. Follow the establishment of their prayers together and what is being accomplished. Look at the struggles in the book of Acts of accepting diverse ethnic groups to come together and worship as one people of God because that's the uniting element. Mutual faith in the Lord Jesus Christ expressed through baptism. That's what brought all these different groups together. And that's what binds the people of God. Ephesians said, 
There is one Lord. There is one faith. There is one baptism. It's commitment to that Lord, the faith which is the body of truth, and one expression of it, baptism. That's what defines the people of God. That's what the basis of the church is. And that's why it's so important that we don't just evangelize. We just don't bring people to faith. But we bring people to a community of believers. But a specific kind of a community of believers. A church. A church where there are elders where there's doctrinal formulation, where there's communion, where there's baptism, where there is a teaching to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Okay. Thoughts, comments, issues, concerns, uh, clarification, anyone. Anybody have anything? Going once, going twice. Yes, Betty. Yes. Well, I, th- I think there are, there are a couple of issues, okay? Um, one, okay, and it, it's one that's, uh, that's our church's philosophy, and, and, and a lot of people, you know, have questioned it, and that is that, that uh, we encourage children to wait to be baptized uh, until they're 13, okay? There's nothing magical about 13 years of age, And there would be nothing sinful about baptizing a five-year-old, a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old, whatever, okay? Uh, Certainly, there wouldn't be anything wrong with that. But it has been many people's experience, certainly been mine, uh, that a lot of children, when they're baptized at a young, young age, not that they can't be saved at a young age, but when they get older, they want to be rebaptized. Uh, for there are a lot of children that run through a period of time in their life in which they have to come to grips with, is my faith my faith or is my parents' faith? Is this something that I really believe or is this just something I've always been taught? You understand what I'm saying? And many of you know that process in your own life. That, that wrestling with, have I just been indoctrinated with this, or is this really my faith? And so many people come to that conclusion, this really is my faith, all right? Or you'll hear about a lot of children that rededicate their, their lives to the Lord, uh, meaning that there's a point in time in their life where this just sets in, 
and is understood in a more profound way. Um, but we certainly shouldn't be minimizing the importance of baptism. All right? And we certainly uh, shouldn't um, give the sense that baptism is insignificant or, or unimportant. Uh, we, we don't want to do that. It's commanded in the scriptures. Uh, it is required. But the other thing that is different about the day and age in which we live is that if you were going to be baptized in the New Testament era, it meant something. Uh, there was a certain <laughs> uh, stigma that was associated with it. It was uh, a demarcation that what you were doing separated yourself from the Jewish people. Uh, just like there are places around this world today that if you're going to be baptized, you're taking your life in your hands. Okay? So that if somebody wanted to be baptized, it's pretty easy to see their true commitment to this. Where in Christendom today, there is just such a blasé fare towards uh, Christian things that it, you can be baptized and, and without any real kind of commitment in the sense that it doesn't cost you very much. Uh, to be baptized. Therefore, you know, you, you've got to really look at what is motivating a person to be baptized. Why do they want to be baptized? Um, but it, it, it certainly ought to be important. And uh, what I'm most concerned about is, I say, the many organizations uh, who just don't baptize, period. I mean, it's not that they're putting it off. They're just saying it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, as I say, the majority of our of our uh, missionaries are not involved in, in uh, ministries that, that baptize. That's not to say that there aren't legitimacies to those uh, ministries, but it is to say that we're losing sight of the importance of discipleship that comes together in community and committedness to each other. Uh, we live in a very individualistic society and world. Uh, that tends to view uh, the Christian faith as simply between me and God. Uh, and uh, I can be a good Christian by sitting home and reading my Bible or watching TV, and, and church is optional. But the scripture says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. There are so many one another passages. Uh, we can't be good Christians without being in fellowship with one another for there's just a whole slew of passages that, that we can't fulfill by being by ourselves. Other thoughts, comments, issues, concerns? Yes, Mike. They're not affiliated with ministries that baptize. You know, they're, 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 they're teaching, uh, you know, in, a, in, a, in a, a school setting, let's say. They don't baptize. They, they are working as support missionaries, you know. Uh, 
working on airplanes, that's good. They're translating scriptures, that's good. But they're, they're not engaged in the type of ministries that would not baptize. In other words, most of them aren't working with churches. That's really it. I mean, most of them are working outside of the church in parachurches or parachurch organizations. And parachurch organizations, by and large, don't baptize. You know, the, again, I'm not against discipling groups on campuses. Don't get me wrong, but, but they're not baptizing. And for the most part, they're not encouraging their followers to get involved in a local church and become a part and come under the authority of elders. You know, that's just a huge one. People don't want to be under the authority of, of a, a church or uh, elders. They want to do their own thing, minister in their own way, follow God in the way in which they think God is leading them. But they don't want to be responsible to a church. They, they, they don't want to have to come and say, what do you think about this? Do you think I should go to this mission field? They want to, as I say, do their own thing and try to get people on board if they, if they can. Um, most missionaries are taught to seek support by individuals, not churches. That's the modern approach. Uh, I say modern because <laughs> we'll get there, but that's pretty outside of the New Testament and uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas being sent out by the church. Uh, being sent out is more than just being supported. It's certainly that, uh, but it's under their auspices. Uh, the whole question about whether Barnabas should take Mark and Paul should take Mark uh, with them, that was resolved by the church. Well, I can go on and on and on, uh, but you just find the church in so many ways in the New Testament that we don't find it today. Uh, Got to quit, but we're going to be back, Lord willing, next week, and we can pick up where we leave off. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your grace and goodness to us. Uh, we thank you for the church, and we just ask, Lord, uh, that you would uh, give us a commitment to you and to one another that's in keeping with what you have purposed and willed. For it's Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and we are dismissed.